I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and lamps. I have read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory. Hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And for the next few weeks, I'll be flipping back and forth between my look at Stephen King's novel, It, and uh, the continuation of my series on the Library of America's Anthology of Civil War Writings. So um, the, the documents I want to look at this week um, cover basically the lead up to the Battle of Gettysburg. We actually have one document that kind of fits within the 100-page pages on the Battle of Gettysburg from, um, what's his name, Arthur Fremantle, who was like a British uh, uh, tourist, I guess, who was pro-Confederate for whatever reason and, you know, witnessed Battle of Gettysburg, uh, kind of dramatized in that Gettysburg movie, if you if you saw that. I saw that back when I was a, when I was a young man or a teenager. Um, so we'll we'll kind of we'll get into that. I think the next episode is mostly going to be uh, the Battle of Gettysburg. Yeah, it's all at least the dates are all July eighteen sixty three. So so there's some Vicksburg stuff here too. Um, as you probably know, if you're familiar with Civil War history, is that the Battle of Gettysburg and the fall of Vicksburg happened pretty much at the same time, within a few days of each other, and that. Um, really turned the tide on the war. Vicksburg probably even more than the Battle of Gettysburg. But, um, but uh, so there's a lot of documents surrounding that. But I think I'm going to be quick today. I think um, I'm going to kind of continue a little bit of what I was talking about before, about the, the kind of the hardening of the lines. But that's, that's not as evident in these documents as it was in the last set. Um, but, um, but there's some good stuff here that, that we need to... To, to talk about here. Um, the first document we have is Samuel Fisk writing to the Springfield Republican. And he was actually writing this from a prison in Richmond. So he was captured during the Battle of Chancellorsville. So this is actually a, another account of the Battle of Chancellorsville. But I, I just think it's worth noting that this document came from someone who was in a prisoner of war camp. And, and he was later on traded or whatever, those prisoner exchanges they did, and he went back to the front. But this is another eyewitness account of the Battle of of Chancellorsville. And of course, he's writing to a Republican newspaper um, in, you know, in the North. Now, the logistics of that, I'm not quite sure about how he got the letter out and how it was published. Maybe that was allowed. Um, I assume they, they, they maybe the Confederates gave special privileges to an officer um, f- while he was in you know prison, whatever that meant. You know, he wasn't being he wasn't being kept in Andersonville. It, it's it couldn't have been that horrible of a prison camp if he was you know writing letters to northern newspapers at the time. But that that might be a privilege of being an officer. It probably is actually. But he talks a little bit about what he would have what it would take to win the war 
And he's not the only person who said something like, like, if I had been in charge of Chancellorsville, we would have won. I mean, and it's not hard to kind of armchair general that particular battle because the the Union did outnumber the Confederates like two to one and the Confederates were attacking and somehow like found them with their pants off uh, and defeated them. But Fisk, of course, was captured in that battle. So I'm not you know, sure he's one to talk necessarily about this, but obviously the strategy of the battle wasn't really his fault. But he, what he talks about here is just um, kind of like a, a Sherman or Grand approach uh, of really putting the fight to the enemy. He writes, um, The enemy lying quietly 100 or 200 yards in front, crouching on the ground or behind trees, answering our fire very leisurely as, as they get a chance for a good aim, about one shot to our 300 hitting about as many as we do, and waiting for the wild tornado of ammunition to pass over their heads. And when our burst of fighting is pretty much over, they have only commenced, end quote. So he's talking about his experience in the Battle of Chancellorsville. It's like that they were like whole, like they were basically waiting until the ammunition was out and then, and then attacking. And he basically says we need to like put the fight to them a little bit more. Um, he says, our boys finding that the enemy has survived such an avalanche of fire as we had rolled in upon him conclude he must now be invincible and pretty much out of ammunition retire. Now, if I had charge of a regiment or brigade, I'd put every man in the guardhouse who could be proved to have fired more than 20 rounds in any one battle. I wouldn't let them carry more than their cartridge box full of 40 rounds and then have them understand that that was meant to last them pretty much through the campaign. And in every way, would endeavor to banish the Chinese style of fighting with a big with big noise and smoke and imitate rather the backwood style of our opponents. Wherever we choose to defeat the enemies of the rebels, we can do so. We don't need 500,000 more men to do it with either. There are enough men either in Hooker's armor, Hooker's, not yeah, Hooker's army now to march straight through to Richmond. Too many men are only an encumbrance. End quote. So the, the big picture here is... Uh, more efficient use of, of resources, shooting to hit. Um, and, you know, this is, does seem contrary to modern warfare where you just pound the enemy with with ammunition, right? I, I remember hearing some stats about, like, how many bolts were fired in Vietnam by American soldiers versus how many soldiers were killed, and it was, like, you know, thousands to one. Um, but he's saying something different which is really make sure every bullet counts and is used properly and he, he kind of puts his suggestion here to put soldiers in an awkward position of having enough ammunition for a campaign only give them 40 rounds but basically saying you must make these bullets count i think it's an interesting point of view and i i wonder if that's partially the tactics used by later commanders like grant and sherman to really um put the fight to them in uh, a more efficient way, I suppose. Um, now, I don't know. Maybe that's not quite what Grant did. I, Grant did. I'm not quite up on the day-to-day the -day tactics and use of logistics and all that by the different armies. But, of course, Grant is able to maintain this siege of Vicksburg with very long supply lines. Uh, I assume using making quite efficient use of the supplies he had. But anyways, that's uh, that's kind of an interesting point of view, I thought. Um, we got uh, some testimony before the American Freedmen's Inquiry Commission uh, in this, the next document, which is kind of just talking uh, again about the use of former slaves 
um, which of course is an ongoing debate. It's been throughout this volume of documents I've been looking at ever since the Emancipation Proclamation was put into effect. We see the mobilizing of black soldiers. There'll be a couple more documents about that issue in this particular episode. But he just, this, this testimony is saying we could make better use of these uh, former slaves. Uh, connected to that is uh, Thomas Wetworth Higgins' journal. He was a officer in the 51st Massachusetts Infantry. Now, of course, the 54th Massachusetts gets uh, much more fame, um, both um, at the time uh, and since. Certainly, that movie Glory has done a lot to promote the idea of the, the, the reputation of the 54th Massachusetts. But apparently, the 51st Massachusetts was actually one of the... F um, Uh, well, 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 was another. There's another unit that would engage in a major battle that we'll talk about in a little bit. But this was another early unit of, of black soldiers. Now he talks about the difficulty of commanding black soldiers, one of which is the amount of time is spent like writing letters, which is something maybe we don't think much in military history. But uh, of course, uh, the the U.S. Army, both North and South, was fairly illiterate. That, of course, was not the case for most of these black units because they were slaves and they weren't allowed to learn to read. Some of them could, but that was the exception. Um, so to write letters, officer, white officers in these units had to like copy and write these letters. And he talks about that being a burden. Um, he talks also a little bit about uh, how black culture shapes the experience of, of running these units. Um, you know, participating in funerals at plantations and things like that. So there's some, um, this, this document talks a little bit about the, you know, the, the challenges of, of, of leading these units. But he, he, like, uh, like Shaw, the leader of the 54th Massachusetts, thinks this is of crucial importance for the country to do this, quote, the rapid multiplication of colored regiments is of more personal importance to me than to all the rest of the nation, for it has taken a load of personal responsibility off my shoulders. There is no doubt that for many months the fate of the whole movement for colored soldiers rests on the behavior of this one regiment, end quote. And, and he's saying, like, we need more black soldiers just to, like, prove their capacity to, to fight, right? And that's, of course, going to happen within months of, you know, or within actually weeks of, of when this was written. Now, there's a couple documents here I'm just going to skip over really quickly because I really don't want to emphasize them too much. But but one is a diary entry, Morning Stonewall Jackson. We saw one of these last time, too. And it's just like, give me a break. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know that much about General Jackson, uh, but, you know, kind of the myth making. You, you don't see much evidence of this kind of myth making going on at the time on the Union side. There, there's, of course, that comes later, right? Grant and certainly Lincoln become, you know, deified in national history. But, you know, there seems so much more in the like the lost cause side of things of, uh, involving this uplifting of these generals as being, you know, beyond that of a normal human. And at the time, too, right? Um, and maybe this is coming from these string of victories from, from the you know, especially in Virginia. Um, but this, this document's a little over the top. Um, 
but it was just a diary, so let's not blame him too much, I suppose. Um, what else we got here? Uh, well, yeah, let's. Um, yeah, let's. There's a couple others here, but I, I'm not gonna say too much about them. Dealing with kind of. Well, one it, one sort of deals with this was published in Harper's, dealing with like the feeling that that there's growing tyranny in the north. All that kind of leads up to the draft riots of the summer of '63. So that so we have Vicksburg on the horizon. We got Gettysburg on the horizon. We got the New York draft riots on the horizon, and all of them are speaking to different aspects of the war. And one we've been seeing a lot of evidence of in these documents is just this emerging kind of or the growing division or this idea that this is going to be a fight to the death, fight to the last man, you know, a fight to one or the others defeated among some. That's what I talked about in the last episode. But also you have growing hostility towards the war itself, the, the peace Democrats, for instance, right? The people who want some kind of peaceful resolution that would have led to the survival of slavery in the United States because that's probably what it would have taken to have uh, a peaceful resolution of the war. And at the same time, that being kind of shielded or deflected by conversations about growing tyranny by the Republicans, right? Like this guy was arrested for, for some kind of treasonal, treasonous activity or this guy was arrested or this guy was is being persecuted, whatever, right? So it's a... It's a part of that, that, like a part of that peace Democrat line was not just we need to end the war, make peace with the South to end the suffering, but the Republicans are sort of this tyrannical force, right? And I think there's a bit of that now in our divided media and our divided political culture today in America of this idea that both sides are are leading this country towards tyranny or leading this country towards, uh, you know, in some kind of unjust system. And this is just a reminder that that kind of, of use of that language is not new in, in American history. And of course, it goes all the way back to like the Adams-Jefferson conflicts, right? Like the Alien Sedition Acts. That's going to bring our country to an irrevocable tyranny. Um, and, and it was happening here too. Habeas corpus or the arrest of some man. That's the context of this was some guy was arrested. Um, some old, some ex-congressman for, you know, court-martialed or something for some media statements he made or whatever. But anyways, it's just more evidence of, of a growing ideological divide, which really wouldn't be tested until the election of, of 1864 in which it was proven that the North was overwhelmingly in support of the war effort, as, as um, at least by that point. But 63 was maybe an inferior year. Lincoln certainly thought that the, the election was a coin flip. Okay, anyways, moving on. The next document, dated June 1863, is a letter from Robert Gould Shaw to, his, uh, to Annie Haggerty Shaw. Um, his, his wife, by this point, they got married... Um, Last time I think we talked about Shaw's documents, it was she was still the last time we talked about one of these letters from Shaw to 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 Annie. They weren't married yet, and somehow I missed looking up his Wikipedia entry that that he did get married or, or whatever. But 
At some point, apparently, they married. But this is about the burning of Darien. Now, this is one of those things that actually, you know, kind of just assumed when I saw the movie Glory that this was just making Shaw look good. All right. So there's a scene in the movie. So I'll reference the movie because it's more likely you saw the movie than you read this document uh, or or even looked up his Wikipedia page. But in the movie, there's a scene where uh, he's sent to with his, his unit with a, another officer, a higher command, higher officer to burn this town in in Georgia, where there's it's like on the coast of Georgia. Right. One of those, one of those coastal regions that were taken by the Navy and troops were moved in. Of course, this all leads up to the Fort Wagner battle, which we, of course, know about. But they were sent in to, like, basically root out this town. And the officer's like, let's burn the town. And, and Shaw's like, no, I don't want to. That's bad. And then the guy, the general, or the, I think it's like a colonel or so. Or maybe it's a general. I don't know what his rank was. But he's like, oh, we're going to burn the town. And your troops are going to do it. And then Shaw's all outraged. Well... You know, I I kind of didn't know. I just assumed this was sort of dramatized. I didn't know it was based on real events. And it is. This document sort of shows that. And that Shaw really did have misgivings about the burning of this town. That's what's shown in the movie. Um, and that's what this, this document sort of proves. He really did have misgivings about it because he writes about it to his wife. And he says, like, his misgivings are, like, mixed. On Like, on the one hand, he doesn't like his particular unit being used this way because he still has this idea that this unit is supposed to prove to the nation that blacks could be effective, efficient, disciplined soldiers. Um, but he also knows if he kind of challenges this, it may undermine that whole effort. It may He may lose command, for instance, or you know be court-martialed. So he has to sort of go along with it. But he's also really bothered that his troops are being used this way. And all, all that stuff that they show in the movie is actually drawn from uh, from uh, documents like this. And he, he even says, like, don't talk about this because I don't want even the, the, the fact that my unit was involved, my troops were involved in this action to to come out and be well broadly known in the North because then there'll be there'll be an impression that Black soldiers are only useful for this kind of, you know, indiscriminate burning of a town. "Quote: I do not like to generate. I, I do not like to degenerate into a plunderer and robber. And the same applies to every officer in my regiment. There was not a deed performed from beginning to end which required any pluck or courage. And that's the real issue. And here he kind of mentions officers, but he earlier on he talks about the soldiers themselves. He's like, this is not honorable action for." for our troops and I don't want it out that that's what we're doing that's what we're engaged in so this is kind of an important document both because it kind of does show this dramatized event is based on reality and because it is really a good window into Shaw's ideology and his perspective on why he's there and it helps contextualize his own you know sacrifice and let's call it that right he he sacrificed himself and his men in a battle that he probably knew was hopeless in order to achieve this goal. So anyways, uh, we got some documents here about Vicksburg and the Vicksburg campaign, but a lot of it is like 
just details about the campaign and the little battles that are going on and the the, the campaign efforts. Nothing too interesting to talk about, I think. But but when we flip back to Virginia, this is an interesting document. This is Robert E. Lee to Jefferson Davis, June tenth, eighteen sixty three, where he says, I'm going to take the army up north to Pennsylvania. And, and it's clear from this document, there's no plan that it's dumb. And, and I'm sorry to say it, like anyone who thinks like Robert E. Lee was a good general should like read this document and really consider. He has no idea what he's doing. And the fact that would be like one of his most devastating defeats. Where he just gets creamed by George Meade at Gettysburg. Um, and the whole campaign didn't really... Like, it comes down to, like, if I go north, I can, like, live off the land. Okay. That's fine. You live off the land, but you lose half your army. All right. That's, that's wise. Um, and then he says, like, oh, we can divide the north this way. And maybe he's been influenced by this press and this idea that there's the peace democrats and you can kind of coerce them into uh into a a peace settlement or something through politics he talks a little bit about that you know it's it's kind of amazing that jeff davis just went along with this i mean maybe jefferson davis didn't have a choice it's like well he's all i got and he's popular and, and he just won this big battle of chancellorsville so just let him do whatever he wants but the plan seems so um stupid he even bases it on like i mean like oh i'll give you a sentence here where it's like sort of like all sorts of weird rhetoric here um that doesn't make much sense to me i'm not a general but it it seems like it's video game logic at times um Quote, conceding to our enemies the superiority claimed by them in numbers and resources and all the means and appliances for carrying on the war, we have no right to look for exemptions from the military consequences of a vigorous use of these advantages, except by such deliverance as the mercy of heaven may accord to the courage of our soldiers, the justice of our cause, and the constancy and prayers of our people. So he sets out, like, they have a numerical material advantage over us, and therefore, you know, God will bless our efforts in in invading the North. Um, so it's like this is. Th then he even talks at one point that this will be like an honorable uh, way to divide the North. It's just clear to me here that he doesn't have a plan, and and maybe someone out there who knows more about this campaign and Lee and Confederate strategy can explain this campaign. But it seems to me there's not much of a of a plan at all. So that's kind of our setup to the Gettysburg campaign. Is this rather, what, in my view, kind of preposterous plan laid out? It, you know, compare this to the plans laid up by like the McClellan before the Peninsular campaign. And you know, of course, Lincoln was always pushing him. You got to go. You got to go. And he's like, No, we got to like do this. Take this town first and move these units there and and do it all very methodically. And and Lee doesn't seem to have any patience for that kind of actual planning. The fact that both those invasions failed, uh, I suppose, might speak more to just the war climate of the time and the nature of war and technology. But still, uh, you, McClellan did his homework, and I don't get the sense Lee was doing his homework here. So a little bit later on, we have a, a pretty elaborate um, writing by Abraham Lincoln 
um, written to it's written to like critics of some of his policies. This is in response to the criticism of, of the press and some people that that kind of federal powers are going too far. And he gives a kind of a constitutional argument here. And I think a lot of his constitutional arguments during the war comes down to the fact that the Constitution does grant executive powers in the case of of invasion or rebellion. And he, he refers back to that a lot. Um, and and I, guess, I obviously this is an example of invasion or rebellion. So I, I, I don't have much problem in understanding the constitutionality of the actions that Lincoln did. And in fact, in many ways, he seems quite modest in the way he used his presidential powers. Uh, and I know there's that narrative out there, largely by lost causers, that Lincoln was overstretching his constitutional authority or whatever. It's like, yeah, but it was like the South that totally disregarded the Constitution. So appealing to that is, is, is kind of ridiculous. Um, and that's actually what Lincoln says here. He says, like, some of these appeals to the Constitution are being made by people who have, have rejected the Constitution and left the Union. But mostly he, he does say all of this stuff seems to me to be constitutional. So it's, it's a rather long document, but it really comes down to, to that. I think it's significant in like the history of American war powers, I suppose, uh, presidential war powers. So I guess that's most of what I want to say. Uh, there's, there's just one more document that I found kind of interesting was a guy named Lafayette McClaws, um, who was a general. He was actually uh, one of the divisions in Longstreet's, right? Um, uh, Corps, I guess, uh, that in, in Lee's army. And he's writing to his wife during the invasion. And of course, I don't know how honestly we should take these accounts. Uh, I guess I have no problem like accepting them as they are. Um, being not a, like a, a document for public consumption. But he's talking about, you know, going to the north and like living off the land, which is, of course, was part of the plan initially uh, in the north. But he talks about encountering people in Pennsylvania and Maryland. And and here's what he says. As I crossed the line into Pennsylvania at Green Castle on the road to Chambersburg, several young ladies were assembled engaging in scoffing at our men as they passed. But they were treated but they were treated with contempt or derision. I heard nothing witty said by any of them. It was made evident, however, that they were not ladies in the Southern ex, uh, accept, acceptations of the word. Now, and so I'll stop there. This seems, this was, we saw this before with like, when Butler talked about like, the people who protested the Union occupation of Louisiana, if you remember this from way back um, before the summer. We looked at this document and, and he was like, talking about the women who are protesting using soldiers as like not real women kind of hinting oh they're kind of prostitutes or whatever right and, and this became kind of an issue in in louisiana among you know confederate loyalists and here we see the same kind of language being used it's like if women are out there yelling at soldiers spitting on soldiers harassing them they're they're not real ladies like a real lady wouldn't treat honorable soldiers this way or something it's kind of uh, just the whole thing's kind of funny right because they in a, in a 20th century sense when you think of like the soviet union and, and 
and women picking up the rifle to, to fight against the invaders. And here it's like, oh, women are supposed to be really respectful to the conquerors who try to move into their land. Uh, anyways, then he says, the men I spoke to acknowledged the brutalities practiced by their troops upon a southern people, fully justifying our retaliating. And we're surprised at our moderation. The poorer class told me the poorer classes told me that th that our own troops behaved better than their own had done. Here, I don't know. Like on the one hand, I can imagine someone talking to a man talking talking to these Confederate army, these troops of the Confederate army moving into their land and saying, "Yeah, okay, <laughs> I guess we're doing the same stuff to you in the south." So. You know, what goes around comes around. They're also like armed soldiers in your farms, so you might not want to talk back to them. Women, knowing they're not going to be retaliated against quite so fiercely, maybe, you know, do a little bit more spitting or rock throwing or, or name calling or whatever. Um, but he makes this point, like the, the, the poorer classes said, like, the Union Army is much worse, you know, and I don't really buy that. Um, but anyways... It's it's a perspective on this this southern invasion of the north, um, but whatever. Oh, we got a document here on the changing of command. Uh, uh, George Meade taking over over um, command of the of of the Union Army. Army of the Potomac. And then I guess the final document is Arthur James Fremantle's diary from the Battle of Gettysburg. So this is a document that actually is a eyewitness account to the Battle of Gettysburg. And um, a lot of this emphasizes, talks about the aftermath of the third day and the in Pickett's charge and the, the crushing of the army. If you are familiar with the Battle of Gettysburg, there's not that much new here, I guess. It, it kind of just gives a very top-down look at the battle because that's who he's hanging out with is generals. So our, our characters in this narrative are all generals and officers and, and, and leadership. Like, you know, he spends a lot of time with Lee and Longstreet's staff, uh, of course. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a good window, I guess, into Longstreet, if that's something you're interested in. I know he's a controversial figure in the Battle of Gettysburg, especially by lost causers, but but there. It's here, if you want to read it. I'm not going to say too much about it. So anyways, the next episode is going to dwell mostly on the Battle of Gettysburg, and maybe some on Vicksburg, too. Um, hopefully, we'll get uh, some more grassroots perspectives. Um, but yeah, all the documents in the next 100 pages are were written in July of 1863. So for good reasons, the editors here focus on that battle. And yeah, I'm fine with that. So anyways, uh, that's it for now. Uh, in my next episode, I'll flip back to talking about Stephen King's uh, novel, It. Um, and, and then get back to the Civil War. So I'll be flipping back and forth over the next few, few episodes, at least until... I finish it. That'll happen first, probably. But it should be about the same time that I finish up the Civil War series and, and that novel. And then we'll move on to, I think, Mark Twain. But if I'm if I'm joining the Stephen King series, I may, I may throw in some other King novels that I really like. Maybe do a Dark Tower read-through. Uh, that would be 
wild and enjoyable, I'm sure. Um, fill up a lot of episodes for sure. So anyways, uh, we'll see where this, this, this podcast takes us when we get to the end of this uh, current run of episodes. So anyways, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, leave me your comments. Uh, send me an email if you want. And I'll see you next time. For the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching.